time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. All right, today I am, well, I'm not in the studio. I'm out traveling on business once again. So today you're going to get to hear another uh, Sunday School lesson. That means it's a shorter version of Fighting for the Faith. lesson today is on, uh, well, it's about Jesus and how he can be found in the story of Abraham and Abraham's circumcision. Talk about an uncomfortable subject. Hi, uh, you're, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Christ. Again, I'm out of the studio today and today we're going to be, uh, for the program, we're going to be putting up a, uh, a Sunday school lesson that I just recently taught on finding Jesus in the story of Abraham. And uh, just a reminder that uh, Fighting for the Faith is uh, listener-supported radio, and uh, and we could truly use your support and help to continue to help this uh, this ex- this ministry really continue to grow and to uh, and to thrive. And the way you do that is by supporting Pirate Christian Radio. By supporting Pirate Christian Radio, you actually support uh, you support fighting for the faith. And if you would like to uh, partner with us, uh, you can do so by sending your gift to Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California, 92693. Again, that's Pirate Christian Radio, P.O. Box 791, SJC, California, 926. Nine three. Now, for tomorrow's show, there's a possibility, we're still working out the logistics, there's a possibility that tomorrow for Thursday, it's going to be a, a best of show, So, uh, but uh, that hasn't been decided yet. That kind of depends on my travel schedule and how my uh, my meetings uh, in my business trip go this uh, today and tomorrow. So, um, you know, that's a, a definite possibility. want to warn you ahead of time. But without any further ado, let's uh, dive into the Sunday School lesson. It's about finding Jesus in the story of Abraham and Abraham's circumcision. And uh, I'll sign off now. If you'd like to email us regarding anything you hear today or any previous show that you've listened to, you can do so at TalkBack at Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and let's jump into the lesson. All right, we're going to start our Sunday School class this morning. Thank you guys for showing up. Uh, always go through our presuppositions. We didn't even get out of our presuppositions last week. You know, we were talking about Sola Scriptura last week. Lectio Divina, that got brought up, yes. Lectio Divina, that's a mystical practice. All right, uh, Sola Scriptura, the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the supreme authority of truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. This is not a popular doctrine today. This is one that is constantly under attack, and of all places, it's under attack in evangelicalism, which doesn't make any sense. Protestants are supposed to be the champions of Sola Scriptura, and now we're the champions of uh, spiritual information via liver shiver, direct communication from God. There's people who claim that they're seeing angels and having uh, breakfast with, uh, with Jesus at Denny's on a regular basis. I wish I was joking. Um, so, you know, the scriptures are our supreme authority. The difference between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet. I'll give you a, just a clear example here. An Old Testament prophet, when the Lord would speak to them, the Old Testament prophet would get up and say, Thus saith the Lord. And what would happen with the words? That followed the thus saith the Lord, they were written down and put into the canon of scripture, right? 
New Testament prophet is one that says, thus said the Lord. Okay? He speaks prophetically about what God has said. And that's what we do. We prophetically speak forth the things that God has said. And how do we know it's that, what God has said? It's in the canon of Scripture. If it's not there, it's not what God said. Okay? And don't come to me and tell me that you've had a direct revelation and that God told you to tell me something. God knows where I live. He has my email address, my phone number. He knows where I work. And he even knows the route that I take to work. And he can stop me at any time if he wants to talk to me. Okay? Um, sola gratia. We're saved by grace alone. Sola fide through faith alone. Solus Christus, we are saved by Christ's work alone. Our salvation is not secured by some combination of me and God working hand in hand together. And uh, I do my part. God does his part and then I'm in. My part of the equation, your part of the equation is sin and depravity. His part is complete gr- grace and mercy and forgiveness won through the merits of Christ on the cross. See how that works? He's the rescuer, we're the rescuees. He's the savior, we're the savees. Okay? Last time I checked, when I see somebody get stuck out in the middle of... You know, it happens every year. It just happened just recently. We, you know, we had rain, and there were people stuck in the middle of the L.A. River. Again, they had to be rescued by the Swift Water Rescue Team. Okay? Because Stormwatch 2008, there was water falling from the sky here in, the, in Southern California. We don't know what to do with it. And somebody always decides that they're going to go down into the washes just to see, wow, look, at there's fast-moving water, and they get swept away. And last time I checked, when somebody gets pulled out by the Swift Water Rescue Team, that person doesn't sit there and go, wow, did you see how I rescued myself? I mean, I put my arm up like that, and the guy grabbed me and pulled me out. No. What ends up happening is that person you know, ends up kissing the feet of the firefighters who pulled him out of that water because otherwise he'd be dead. Right? So the credit always goes to the savior. The savee is just the person who is dumb enough to get himself into that situation in the first place. Interactive. That means you can ask me questions. Maddening wine. Um, for those of you who like hacky sack, good news is there's now a Christian hacky sack out there available on the market. This is for when you're kicking it with your friends or kicking it with the Lord. <laughs> and then uh, my favorite. Um, how many of you watch MTV and are keeping track of Britney Spears, my new BFF? <laughs> no one, huh? All right, yeah. I, I, when I was in Chicago recently, I was, I was there in a, on a Sunday afternoon. I was flipping channels, and I came across MTV and Britney Spears. Not Britney, it's Paris Hilton. She's it's Paris. Yeah, it's not Britney Spears. It's Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton has her own reality TV show on MTV, and um, wow. Um, I wanted to change the channel, but it was like watching a train wreck. You know, you just you know, like when you're driving down the freeway, uh, freeway and you see a, a collision or something like that. You want to keep going, but you just you know, like that. So same thing here. Um, and wow, Paris Hilton, just the paragon of Christian morality. And um, I want my daughters to be just like her. <clears throat> but apparently now there, uh, the Christian Post has an article on how to share your faith using Paris Hilton's My New BFF. So, you know, just think of the opportunities that you can have if you just read this article. You can actually use this, the wisdom of Paris Hilton to share your Christian faith. Now, the funny thing is I'm trying to get Paris Hilton to come on to my uh, radio program to react to this. And uh, so far, her publicist hasn't emailed me back a no. But all that basically means is like if you've seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, you know, where the guy asks the girl, you know, so what are the chances of us two getting together? And she says like one in a million. And the, the, the guy goes, wow, that means we have a chance. So... (laughs) 
you know. So you're saying that there's a chance. Anyway, so, yeah, about one in a million chance of getting parasilled on my radio program. All right, moving along. All right, Jesus in the Old Testament. This has always been our, this is our reminder here. When we read the Old Testament, you're not reading it right if you're not seeing Christ in it, okay? And the reason why is because all of, through all these stories, what we're doing is we're following the bloodline of the king. And you see the bloodline of the king really come out in the opening chapters of, Mar- of Matthew and Luke. You know, that's why you have those really boring genealogies. And so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. I just remember as a kid reading those and just going, bleh. You know, why do I want to read these? Well, actually, that's really critical stuff because what you're doing is you're following the bloodline of the king. This isn't just history. It's really a salvation history. This is the history of Christ's redemptive work in history for all sinners. And the thing we all have in common with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, all the way down the line to Malachi is that we are sinners, right? And uh, a lot of people, they try to take the Old Testament stories and turn them into little uh, Aesop's fables. You know, well, there's a moral to the story. And if you can just dig out the moral to the story of the biblical principle, then you you can conquer like Joshua. You can dare to be a David and slay those Goliaths and stuff like that. That's actually doing a disservice to the text as well as to the Lord, really, because the story ultimately, you know, what I think is interesting is, is that um, if you read Martin Luther's account of the story of David and Goliath, you're thinking, how is he going to put Jesus in the middle of that? Well, he did a really good job of it. If you've ever read what uh, Martin Luther said about that little story, he basically says that just like Israel had to stand by and vicariously receive the victory won for them miraculously, so we vicariously stand by as Christ, our victorious king, conquers sin, death, and the devil through his death on the cross. See, that always points to, points to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, in his work. All of these stories are pointing to God. That's the overarching theme. Now, today's uh, subject could be a little uncomfortable for some, but it's important that we go through it because it touches on... Um, it touches, again, on the central theme of salvation by grace alone through faith alone as it's outlined in the Pauline epistles, specifically in Romans and Galatians and partly in Philippians, too, when he's writing against the Judaizers. Okay, So last time we talked about uh, Ishmael and Hagar and how, how Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes those two uh, characters and then allegorizes them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit, I do not recommend allegorizing. Bad, 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 bad. If, if you were a, an apostle and the Holy Spirit led you to do it, then that's a different excuse. Okay? But we don't get to allegorize. Okay? But Paul takes them, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he allegorizes them regarding children of the slave woman versus children of the free. And points again, as, points us back to salvation by grace through faith alone. So today, we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 16, um, you know, with the, with the story continue, we kind of we, we finish 16, and then we'll dive into this next one, and it's going to be touching on the subject of circumcision, which is always oh so fun. All right, Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. That's old. Okay. That's, I just, let's just, you know, 
I, I, I have friends that are having children, you know, and they're in their early 40s, and I'm thinking, fools. <laughs> you know, what are you thinking? You know, of course, they wanted to wait and, you know, get the career established and have the big nest egg taken care of and their 401k padded, and then they had children, and then the stock market tanked, which I thought was really just poetic justice. But, you know, here it's 80, 86 years old, and this is his first natural-born child uh, through Hagar. So when Abram was 99 years old, fast forward the tape a little bit here. So we go from 86 to 99, Ishmael's what, 13? Okay. Uh, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Okay, so here we've got Abram, who, Abram which means exalted father, and at the age of 99... With one son to his name, Ishmael, whom God has not chosen to be the, fa- the, the one by which the promise comes, right? God, this is almost a joke. He's 99 years old. And God says, I'm changing your name to father of many. Okay? It... I don't know how healthy he was at 99. He did live for quite some time after this. But, you know, at 99 years old, I mean, he's got to look like, you know, that guy from Monty Python where, you know, the guy's ringing the bell, bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. I'm feeling better. 99 is the new 30, right? Yeah. Okay. You see what's going on here. It's, you know... So God, this isn't the first time God has talked to Abram, Abraham now. Now, Abraham and it hasn't, this is not the first time he's talked to him and, and promised him these things. He's been promising him this for his entire life, right? And if this were me, my response would be, yeah, right. You've got to be kidding me, right? Well, that's the funny thing about it, though, okay? The, Abraham is held up as a man who had faith and he trusted God and believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so is he walking by sight or by faith? Definitely by faith here. But at this point, 99 years old and God comes in, this is some kind of a sick joke, says, I'm going to make you the father of many. Abraham goes right on, right? Trusts God. Now, in the same way, Look at us. Christ declares you to be a saint. Here's the funny thing. He declares me to be a saint. Righteous. You've got to be kidding me. Right? Me, you, righteous. Didn't we just confess our sins just a few minutes ago? Are you really righteous? Can you point to anything in you that basically says, yeah, I'm righteous? Anybody? No one wants to step into those waters. There it is. Righteous through Christ. Okay? So you can't see it, right? 
But somehow, according to the scriptures, those of us who've been given faith, washed in the waters of baptisms, had our sins washed away, we've been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, had our hearts circumcised by Christ, have been clothed with Christ, um, all of these things that are applied to us via promise, we're declared righteous? Look in the mirror. We're all dying. We're all getting old. Are you really going to live forever? I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, yet shall, even though he dies, yet shall he live? You're kidding me, right? We're a pretty sorry looking bunch. Trust me, I'm looking at you guys. <laughs> you know, I include myself in this situation, right? This is kind of the same thing. It's really the same thing. Abraham here at 99, well past you know, the vim and vigor of his youth, is now going to be called the father of many. Really? <laughs> and you guys are holy? It's the same thing, right? Trust in the promises of Scripture. Trust the promises of God, Christ. All right. So behold, my covenant is with you. I shall be the, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'm not dead yet. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This has got to be some kind of a joke. And I will give you, give to you and your offspring after you the land of your, uh, of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now, chicken and egg question. Did circumcision establish the covenant, or was circumcision a sign of a covenant that already existed? It was a sign of a covenant that already existed. Okay? And how was that covenant established? Remember, it was a unilateral covenant. Abram was asleep during the proceedings. Okay? No, seriously. God put him to sleep. You're going to sleep. He's lying there snoring, sawing logs, and God causes this you know, fire to pass through these halves of animals, and he establishes his covenant, and Abram's part was to be there as the dead person. Yeah, that, that was great. And so now, and the thing is, is that Abram's covenant with God is established by faith, not by works. Okay? And so here, the circumcision bit is a sign of the covenant. It doesn't establish the covenant. Right? Okay? The problem with what happened with the Judaizers is really the difference between the Torah of the law or the Torah of faith. Okay? These are, these are terms that I recommend that we all 
learn here. Let me give you an example. Okay, We Lutherans, we talk about church exists where the gospel is rightly preached and the sacraments are administered according to the gospel. That's what our confessions say, right? Okay. Now, one of the reasons why there's a distinct difference between what we believe about baptism compared to, let's say, your grassroots, non-denominational evangelical believes about baptism, which, by the way, I believed that way once, is that they turn baptism into a work, okay? which doesn't make a lot of sense because in their mind, in their thinking, baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol, and it's something that you do as an ordinance, it's an act of obedience to show the world that you have made a decision for Jesus. Okay? Ignoring all of the passages of Scripture that say that in our baptisms, our sins are washed away, our sins are remitted, we're buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ, our hearts are circumcised by Christ. All these great promises associated with baptism, they turn it to something that we do rather than God's work. Okay? So they've taken... Really, you can say the sacraments, and the sacraments now become a sacraments of work. Okay? There's also, that's the wrong way to do it. It's sacraments administered according to the gospel, our confessions say. When you look at the sacraments through gospel, baptism is not our work. It's God's. For which of us is capable of washing somebody's sins away? Which of us are capable of actually sticking somebody into the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. I'd like to meet that person if you can pull it off, right? Which of us can circumcise a man's heart? None of us can. So baptism, when you understand it according to the gospel, baptism administered according to the gospel, it's God's work that is full of gracious gifts and promises to us from God. When you turn it into man's work, you've turned it into something else. Yes, Okay, now you bring up a good point. Okay, let's, this is, this is going to fall into this category. Can, I'm going to answer your question with a question. I'll be rabbinic with you for a second. Can you point me to a passage of Scripture that says that the effectiveness of vicariousness of baptism is completely dependent upon how the person is receiving it? Okay, so you bring it in if they don't have a clue. So there's no, there's no passage of Scripture that basically says that you're, you have to have the right understanding of it for, in order for God to do his part. There's no mindset that has to be there. Okay. Now, uh, if the person coming to baptism were completely hostile to what would happen in the waters of baptism, could God still do what God's going to do? Yeah, <laughs> well, let's just say they... They begrudgingly decide that they're going to go through with it. And maybe the reason why is because they're feeling pressure from somebody they love. Right. But they complete, think the whole thing is complete malarkey. Can God do what he's going to do in baptism? He's all-powerful. Okay, I'm going, to get, I'm going to ask this by pointing you to something else in Scripture. We're going to look at this baptism as promise or baptism as law. Okay. Because our, our, our confessions say that true church exists where the sacraments are administered according to the gospel, which means it's not our work, it's God's work, and it's done as promise and as gift and is full of God's riches and treasures and mercies, and all, rather than something I do to please God, something I do as an act of obedience that somehow God owes me after that or something. 
Okay, we got Christian. We got Christian parents bringing a child to the waters of baptism because God has promised things. Now we don't. You know, it, we've got to be careful here. We don't believe that the way we go out and do evangelism is to go grab a fire hose and a four Lutherans to hold it down and then just start hosing down. And you go to, like, Dodger Stadium and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not a baptism. Okay, so we don't, we don't engage in that. Okay? So when you bring the child to the waters of baptism, what we're doing is, is we're pointing people to the promises in Scripture regarding baptism. Okay? We believe that they are, are vicariously applied to all sinners. Okay. Do you think a child is a sinner or not? I have three of them. I know they're sinners. Okay. From the moment they come screaming out of the womb, you know, there's not a doubt. When, you know, there's no doubt anymore. Okay. But, uh, you know, they're cute. Um, but they're sinners nonetheless. And if you want a more objective criteria for knowing whether or not an infant is a, is a sinner, do infants die? Yeah, wages of sin is death. Okay, so when we look at baptism, and believe me, actually, we're, we're, I'm trying to I'm try to hook this back into circumcision here. You look, we're looking at it through the gospel. These are the promises associated with it. We're bringing our children who are sinners to the waters of baptism for an objective word, objective promises poured on their head, attached to the word of God. You know, for their salvation. Why? Because they need salvation just as much as you and I do. And none of us were saved by some cognitive decision to follow Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 make it clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And, you know, for it is by grace you have been saved. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. What's the it? Salvation and faith. It's both. Okay? So faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. So if you trust in Christ... You've come to trust in Christ because God has given you the gift of faith, the ability to believe, which you did not have naturally as a sinner, right? Okay. Now, I'm going to come back to the mindset question here because you you asked a tough theological question, okay? But I'm going to, I want to throw one out. I want to throw an answer out here that's a little bit bizarre, and I got to find the story of Naaman the leper. Okay, here it is, uh, 2 Kings 5. Okay, 2 Kings 5. Now, this story isn't necessarily about baptism, but it is a good story about the means of grace. Okay? And in a sense, there's a baptism going on here, and I want you to pay real close attention to the attitude of the baptizee. Okay? Naaman, who was a commander of the army of the kings of Assyria, was a great man with his master and, his, and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Well, there we go. God had given victories to Syria. I thought Syria was a pagan nation. That's a whole other theological can of worms. All right. Now, the Syrians on, the, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Love the faith of this little girl. Think about it. This is a girl who probably has seen friends and family murdered by the Syrians. She's been taken off and she's now a slave of the Syrians. And somehow through all of this, she still trusts with this childlike trust in the Lord. Okay. 
She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. By the way, clothing is a very important thing back in these days. They, they didn't have Walmart. They didn't have Marshalls. Has Marshalls gone out of business? They're BK. They didn't have Kohl's. Okay? They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. I mean, you just don't go down. Getting clothes was a big deal. Okay? And then, you know, so, um, and he brought uh, the letter to the king of Israel, which read, now, this is the king of Syria writing to the king of Israel, uh, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. So what does the king of Israel basically think? The king of Syria has, this is some kind of a trick. This is some kind of a political thing. I send you this guy. I mean, you, there's a God in Israel. I send you this guy to, you know, to heal him and you didn't heal him. Well, that's it. I'm going to make war with you and kill you guys. How dare you not heal this poor leper? Right? But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? King has probably read that first sentence go, you're kidding me, right? Of course I would tear my clothes. What do you know, silly prophet? <laughs> Let him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Okay. The prophet speaking through the word of God has told Naaman to go into the Jordan River and to dip himself seven times. Is there anything special about the Jordan River that we can send lepers there to this day and they would be healed of such diseases? No. Where was the promise located? It was God's word attached to the waters of the Jordan River at that moment. If Naaman had left, would he have been healed? No. Now, Another trick question. Is Naaman, for lack of a better way of putting it, a Christian at this point? Does he trust in Christ and trust in the Lord for his salvation? Does he believe in the God of Israel? Okay, he doesn't, does he actually believe in him in the sense that he trusts the Lord for salvation? No. Okay. So here we've got an interesting thing. Now remember what I said, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. When somebody trusts in the Lord for salvation, that's a gift from God, right? It's not from themselves. Get all this in your head because this guy's going for a dip here in a minute. And this will answer your question a little bit about his attitude. Okay. All right. All right. Where was it? Okay. Okay. And you shall be clean. Naaman was angry. Verse 11. And went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He was expecting a show, right? A spiritual show. He wanted Elisha to come out. Elisha doesn't even go out to him. He just says, I'll go dip seven times. 
doesn't even give him the courtesy of talking to him face to face. He expects him to come out, Oh, God of heaven, I lift up my holy hands, and Lord, we pray for him and the leper, and boom, right? No, that's not what happened. And Naaman is not pleased. In fact, it says he's angry, okay? Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Oh, now he's getting regional on us. Playing the region card. Yeah, we've got better rivers in the Jordan, that little mud hole of a river. All right. Are they not better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? You hear the answer going, no. So he turned away and went away in a rage. Apparently he needs to go to get some anger management, you know, counseling at this point. So, I mean, you can tell he's just not happy with the situation. But his servants came near to him, which probably was not an easy thing to do, considering the master's in a rage. You know, when people are in a rage, the last thing you want to do is for your slave to come up to you and try to speak, speak to you rationally. You're, you know, that slave is likely to get beaten or lose his head. Servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He ha- he, has he actually said to you, wash and clean, be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. Anger, rage, they talk sense into him. Fine. Go down and wash seven times. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Miracle doesn't end here. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This healing extended not just to his body, but God completely healed him, giving him faith. How is that possible? He had a bad attitude. You see, the promises are not dependent upon the attitude of the one receiving the promise. The promises are dependent solely on the good name of the one giving the promise. Has God not said, dip seven times and you will be clean? And despite his bad attitude, his sinfulness, his anger, and his rage, God not only heals him, God gives him faith. So much so, listen to this. Behold, I now know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged them to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes to the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Why? Because that's something he had to do in an official capacity as the commander of the army of Syria. Not because he was really worshiping there, but that was something he was required to do as part of his job. And what did the prophet say? He says, oh no, that's it, you're lost, you're damned, you're going to hell. And he says, go in peace. 
So we're talking about circumcision. Circumcision is a sign of a covenant, a covenant that was established by faith. The Judaizers in the New Testament time, and I would even say Judaizers even at, at the time of Christ, the Pharisees and before, turn circumcision into an act of obedience that saves you by what you do. Can the law save? No. So they take circumcision, which was established as a sign of a covenant that was established by faith, and turn it into circumcision via law, law-keeping and good works. That's what they do. Okay? But when circumcision is established, it's, it's gospel. It's not law. Right? Here at the establishment of circumcision, circumcision is a sign of a covenant that was established by faith. This ridiculously childlike faith that Abram had, so much so that God changed his name at the age of 99 to father of many, and so far he is father of one. And that isn't even the one that even the promises says that he's going to be the father of nations and the kings and princes and all this would happen. Okay. Circumcision is a sign of a covenant established by faith. Pharisees and Judaizers have all, throughout all of history have turned this into something that you do as a work of obedience in order for you to be saved by your law-keeping. Okay? Much the same way they twist baptism and the sacraments into something that's done by the law. All right. All right. Everlasting covenant. We continue. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Okay, so she's long past the heat flash stage of life, and now she's going to be um, the princess of many nations? Okay, so it's, it's where the emphasis falls. Got it. Got it. He says, I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become, uh, become nations, kings of peoples and shall, uh, uh, shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a woman, to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Okay. I don't know if y'all have been to a retirement center lately. Okay, they don't generally have nurseries attached to them. Okay, just something I've noticed. Okay. All right. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Come on, we're tired, God. <laughs> God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac or Itzak. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Everlasting covenant. Important words, everlasting covenant. Who is the one who is the one descendant of Itzhak who is capable of establishing firmly within himself an everlasting covenant? Christ. That's where he is, right there. This everlasting covenant talk is pointing right back to Christ. Again, that first promise after Adam and Eve fell. You will crush his head. He will bruise your heel. The promised one. 
setting up an everlasting covenant. It doesn't look that way right now, does it? Can't see it right now, can we? And yet, God's promise is sure and true. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and, and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant, this covenant of faith, with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to them. Remember, this is the day before antibiotics, antiseptics. Um, yikes. Clean hands. Um, mm. um, as God had said to him, Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his, and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay? So, kind of looking at some other passages of Scripture mentioning you know, these themes. Okay, here we go. Romans, chapter 2. Okay? Now, Romans starts off, the opening chapters start off with with really the nuclear bomb of the law. By the time we get into the the gospel passages in chapter 3, Paul, through his pen, has taken everybody in humanity and reduced us down to a small smoldering ash of nothingness once the law has run its course. No one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned. All have abandoned God. No one seeks after God. I mean, when he's done our self-esteems, you know, it's time to go see our psychologist, okay, because our, our personal self-worth has been reduced to nothing, okay? Paul, right here, is kind of in the middle of this argument, and he's going to be uh, bringing up circumcision. So listen how he's writing here, and in a sense, he's writing to Judaizers, or those who think they're saved by the law. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others. Do you not teach yourself? The word we want to apply here is kind of this hypocrite thing going on here. We all know people like this, and I've been like this myself many times, where, you know, hey, I know what God's word teaches. I know what it says. And, and boy, I'm sure a guide to the, yeah, well... <clears throat> you ever apply it to yourself, Roseboro? All right. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, here we go. Indeed is of value if, if, it's a big word, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as, his uncircumcision regarded as circumcision? 
Okay, now, for, think for a second here. Moving forward in the passages in Romans, Paul says that by faith we uphold the law. How is that possible? Huh? It's not, but we do. It's, nonetheless, we do. By faith we uphold the law. How do we do it? By Christ. Christ did it. Okay? Because Christ's righteousness is reckoned to you as if you're the one who lived it. That perfect life that Jesus was living, you know, and we put the what would Jesus do bracelets on. It's not what would Jesus do. It's what did Jesus, what, what he did. What, what has he accomplished? He actually lived a perfect life. And through faith, his perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift. It's not fair, but it sure is wonderful. Okay? So by faith, God doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as saints. He sees us with clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So those who are uncircumcised, how do they keep the law? By faith, right? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision regard as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You could almost say only. Okay? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So where are our hearts circumcised? So circumcision is not merely an outward thing, right? Where does Scripture talk about where our hearts are circumcised? Bonus question, anyone want to hazard a guess? Where, where does it say that in Scripture? Let me read it. This is a great passage. Let me read to you this in context. Starting uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Greek words, Greek passages there, it's, uh, it's this idea that Jesus is, is he's like the signet ring of God pressed into, into wax. It's, 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 that's the word picture there. Okay, so Jesus is, you know, the whole deity dwells bodily. Uh, Okay, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised. Okay, you were circumcised. And that includes you women. Where? In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay, by putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So according to this passage, all Christians are circumcised. It's a circumcision of the heart, not done by the hands of men, but by the hands of Christ. Where? Baptism. Some pretty powerful stuff. There was a lot going on this morning when that little boy was being baptized. Did you see it? Did you see his heart being circumcised by the hands of Christ? Then how do you know it happened? 
Because God's word promises that's what happened. Just like God promised Abram at 99 years old that he would be the father of many nations. He couldn't see it, but God's promise was sure and true. Can we trust this? The answer is, yeah, we can. Why? Because we can trust Christ. What was his view of Scripture? Of the Old Testament, he believed it was the, it was the very words of God. He acted like Abram was a real person of history, that Adam and Eve were real people, that the flood really occurred. And he promised the apostles that their writings would become Scripture. So everything hinges on Christ. Everything points to Christ. And this is his work, not ours. Powerful stuff when you read it through there. All right, we'll pick this up next week. Thank you.